0: Hi everybody. Welcome back to Childhood, History and Critique. I'm Pat Ryan and this time I have a conversation with Peter Kelly, associate professor at Armit School of Education with campuses in Melbourne and Bundura, Australia. Peter is a social theorist and an internationally recognized leader in critical youth studies. He is the author and editor of too many books to list. But they are the result of his sustained interest in youth transitions, in families, at work, within peer cultures, and the ways these transitions are being remade under globalization. Three of his recent books include The Self as Enterprise, Foucault and the Spirit of Twentieth-Century Capitalism, from Grauer Publishing. Smashed. The Many Meanings of Intoxication and Drunkenness, from Monash University Publishing, and a recent collection edited with Anneliese Camp, entitled, A Critical Use Studies for the 21st Century, from Brill. Our conversation has been divided into two parts. In Part 1, we learn a little bit about Peter's academic background and interests. We discuss the collection, A Critical Use Studies for the 21st Century, and the conference he is convening with others in Melbourne this December, entitled Young People and the Politics of Outrage and Hope. In part two, I asked Peter to help me make sense of incidents that I wrote about in my accompanying essay, such as the pepper spraying of Paul Slosher in a Maine prison in 2012, and the use of cage fighting as a disciplinary measure at a Dallas public high school a decade earlier. Peter introduced the concept of wicked problems. We reflected generally on how the idea of wicked problems can help us understand and rethink the challenges facing young people broadly today. We recorded this conversation in May 2015. I hope you find it as thought-provoking as I did. Take care. Hello, Peter. Patrick. Are you in Bandura right now? Uh, no, I'm actually at my home in, um,
1: in East Melbourne. I, um, the campus, the, the university has a couple of campuses. It has one at uh, Bandura and one in the city, right in the city centre, and I'm working in there later on this afternoon.
0: So most of the population in Australia must live around uh, sort of the, the fringe of the continent, in a sense, and a lot of it in the we south. Do. We do. We, we cling to the coastline. Much like well, in, in Canada, 80% of the population lives within about, uh, oh, I don't know what it is, 100 kilometers of the US border.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all. So, I mean, there's vast, vast areas of coastline that are uninhabited because just so isolated. And then there's the interior and then it's the East Coast. Um, down from, Brisbane down through Sydney, Melbourne, across to Adelaide. So,
0: well, someday I hope to be able to visit, but I have not yet been uh, to Australia or New Zealand. Yeah, uh, but, yeah,
1: we, we we tend to travel much more readily than uh, North Americans and or Europeans. I've just come back from just come back from five weeks away, where I was had time in New York and. Uh, London and Journal, journal of Youth Studies Conference in Copenhagen. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was there was some talk about the, the next Journal of Youth Studies Conference being in Australia, and everybody was complaining how far it would be and how much it would cost to get there. And but, they were having conversations with Australians who'd just done the trip
0: <laughs> the opposite way. Exactly. It must be hard so, to hear. Well, I, I think that actually could come up for, with our society. I don't know this for sure, but... Uh, We've, we've made a habit of trying to get around to different places. And, uh, that's one of the things that come up. The bulk of our membership is in North America. But if you're going to be international, you have to be international. Otherwise, you're just North American. Exactly. And, and, and in an area of childhood and the history of childhood, one of the reasons that we, well, we think about ourselves is that this is an international topic, a global topic. So, but it's hard to walk that walk sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. You can talk that talk, it stretches you. It stretches you to to be able to follow through. Well, Peter, thank you for for um, uh, being you know willing to sit down with me today. Tell us about yourself and your intellectual interests and and your academic background.
1: No, well, thanks for for the opportunity. I uh, came to the academy late. I was a 30 year old before I went to university as a mature age student. And uh, my first undergraduate degree was a primary teaching degree, but was also a um, what you might call a liberal arts degree. And I developed an interest in research and issues to do with children and young people. And on completing that degree, decided to follow on the trajectory of um, an honours degree, which in Australia is prep for a PhD. Uh, enrolled in a PhD, did some some youth work. Uh, for local government during that time and had the opportunity of my undergraduate degree at, at Deakin University in Geelong at that time where there was a lot of uh, internationally renowned scholars in uh, the field of of education and feminism and postmodernism and poststructuralism, people like Jane Kenway, uh, Bill Green, a number of other people that might be known in in those sorts of circles. So I thought it, you know, it was, a, it was actually a really interesting and challenging introduction to some of the, the things interested me outside of those academic frameworks and the academic frameworks and training provides a, or enables you to develop a vocabulary to make sense of things that you might be interested in anyway, in, in different ways. So I've, in the period since, from the end of the 1990s, started the 2000s, worked in, uh, The field of youth studies, sociology of youth, uh, an interest and concern with the ways in which young people's identities are governed and regulated Mm -hmm. in an increasingly globalised world uh, through various ideas, particularly ideas of of risk and, and young people being at risk in those contexts. What are they at risk of? What are they at risk of not becoming? So I've worked in that space for the last decade or so, published around those those issues and and worked with a a number of theoretical ideas that come from Foucault's work on the ethics and care of the self and governmentality and the way that's been taken up in a number of areas. More sociologically, the work of Giddens and and Beck and Zygmunt Bauman thinking about reflexive modernization and and liquid life, if you like.
0: One of your works that I sat down with in the last uh, week was uh, critical youth studies for the 21st century. Perhaps you could Say a little bit about critical youth studies and and this this collection.
1: Okay. So the collection grew. Or it's a 35 chapter edited collection that um, <coughs> took about three years to put together, and it uh, invited it was an open call uh, invitation for expressions of interest that circulated through a variety of uh, networks, like the International Sociology Association, a number of other places in the uh, North America. And so we've got contributors from what we call old and new Europe, the UK, um, North America, South America, uh, Australia, New Zealand, the Asia Pacific. And the challenge that my colleague and I, my colleague Annalise Camp from uh, she's currently at Dublin City University in Ireland, the challenge that we were working with at that point in time was to think what critical might mean beyond maybe an easy reference to the Frankfurt School or ideas about critical theory that might come from that context. Uh, what critical might mean after Marxism, after post-structuralism, after post-modernism, in terms of the sorts of work that intellectuals might do when they take young people as as the object of their study. We tried to situate that in the context of the the universities that most of us work in, a neoliberal uh, managerialist, competitive higher education environment that imagines research as being about impact or about relations with external stakeholders or a variety of other things that might possibly change what critical meant. Mm-hmm. And we were also trying to see in that context, if, if that's a context in which we do our work, then there are some significant issues with that context in which we do our work in the contemporary university if young people are of concern and interest when we do that work, what sorts of things are we concerned about and or interested in uh, exploring? So we set up a number of points that people might respond to, uh, thinking about uh, globalisation, education, poverty, marginalisation. And that came out of a sense that when people talked about doing critical work, it probably wasn't necessarily... Uh, a shared sense of what critical meant in that context. And we didn't want to impose another or- orthodoxy in saying that you know, if critical looks like this, we wanted to open up the space that people could imagine working in if they talked about doing critical work in this space. You know, one of the ways we drew uh, on, on the work that enables us to think about that was to think about what Sigmund Bauman said critical was. He, he understood critical. Uh, Bauman, for those who don't know, a Polish sociologist, but has worked in the UK for the last 30 or 40 years, incredibly influential, I'm not so sure about in the States, but certainly in Europe and, and in Australia. And he talked about uh, critical not being an orthodoxy, not being a particular school of thought, but being more about a disposition or an ethos to thinking about the world as it is and how it might be other than as it is. And I think all the contributors in that in that collection, depending on the ways in which they approach whether they're more concerned about the theoretical discussion or some methodological issues, working with young people or working with issues about education or transition or sexuality or whatever. Sometimes more explicitly, sometimes more implicitly. That was what shaped their contribution. That so there's an agenda of change embedded in that collection, but change that doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily have in mind an endpoint. You know, lots of the work that that, that was done in there it, is a starting point in some respects for for further work, for further thinking, for further ways of engaging with young people. And and again, part of what it is to be critical in this context for me is embedded in a concern with having encountered some dogmatism about what critical is, unless you're theoretically pure and your politics is explicit, then you can't call yourself critical. One of the things that I want to work with is the idea of ambivalence. And Sigmund Bauman again, been really influential there. A number of books from the early, late 80s, early 90s, a book called Modernity and Ambivalence and a book called uh, The Holocaust and Modernity. And one of the things that Bauman argues is that ambivalence is a fundamental feature, characteristic of the human condition. The idea of choice, for instance, uh, makes no sense unless there are choices to make, things to choose from. If you have things to choose from, then you're confronted with ambivalence. What's the right choice? Risk makes no sense yeah. unless you understand that there are options, other options and possibilities. If there are other, other options and possibilities, what are the right choices? What are the right options and possibilities? Confronted with ambivalence. Our whole lives are shaped by ambivalence. None of us is certain, uh, or shouldn't be anyway, <laughs> yeah. about a whole variety of things in our lives. And Bauman argued that the history of modernity is a history of an attempt or of multiple attempts to exterminate ambivalence, to remove ambivalence from our lives. And social science has played a key role in that, you know, come up with the right formula, the right methodology, the right theory, the right concept, the right idea, then we'll solve sort of solve whatever problem it is that we're, we're working with or encountering. And I think a lot of critical theories have been a bit like that, come the revolution, you know, history will end. If we only do this, this, and this, problem will be solved. For me, (laughs) yeah, yeah, life isn't like that. We're confronted with ambivalence and have to make our way through a life that is fundamentally ambivalent. So, how, in that context, do we think about, you know, children and young people, the experiences that shape their lives, their families' lives, to do that in a way that acknowledges, even embraces that ambivalence without trying to exterminate.
0: Is part of this opening a door to accept human ambival- ambivalence acknowledging that we might not be able to create the outcomes that we want, but even more than that, it won't be clear to ourselves exactly what it is that we want.
1: Yeah, look, I, I agree. I, when, when you were talking there, I was reminded of a quote from Foucault who talked about his argument was that when people said, you know, what's your politics in terms of the way that you, you know, think about power, you think about discourse, power is everywhere, discourse is everywhere, there's no outside, you know, what can we do? Mm -hmm. One of the things he argued was that not everything is bad but that everything is dangerous. If everything is dangerous then there's always work to do and so in that frame, he talked about his position was about a, a, a hyper and pessimistic activism. You don't stop acting. You don't stop thinking. You don't stop trying to imagine the world other than the, than it is. But there's a recognition that even if you imagine the world should be other than it is, you don't necessarily have the tools and the knowledge or the certainty or the lack of ambivalence that might be appropriate in a given context and a given intervention in in your attempt to do something for disadvantaged, marginalized young people and children.
0: You have a a conference that you're part of organizing uh, on youth, hope and and rage. Um, Could you say a little bit about that, about the, the theme and where it's located and if people are interested, if they're going to be in Australia, it's something they should see, that type of thing?
1: Okay, so it's a two-day conference. It's an invitational conference in terms of participants. We put out a call for expressions for people who are wanting to submit uh, and present. We hope to get an edited collection out of it. It's in uh, early December in Melbourne, and it's called Young People and the Politics of Outrage and Hope. Mm -hmm. The brief that people responded to tried to capture some of the significant issues that young people face in the first decade and a half of the 21st century. You know, the ongoing war on terror, the, the wars fought under that banner, uh, mass migrations, mass, mass movements of refugees, uh, the global financial crisis. Uh, the large-scale austerity programs that have been instituted in a lot of OECD economies as a consequence of that crisis being reimagined as a crisis of sovereign debt rather than a crisis of corrupt bankers. So we tried to shed light on what we thought were some of the the significant forces around the world shaping young people's existence at, at this point in time, situating that in young people's own responses to that through things like Occupy and We Are the 99% or the Spanish Indignados or the Greek Citizens' Protest Movement, uh, the, the riots in, in UK cities in 2011. Lots of young people around the world are now encumbered with significant amounts of debt with little chance of, or option of seeing themselves being able to repay that. And support to families and young people have been slashed and the most vulnerable pay for the, the sins of the wealthiest. So there should be outrage, our argument is there should be outrage. But one of the things that possibly should come from outrage is, is is hope because hope is about imagining something other than what it is at this point in time. So we've had significant contributions from a number of people around in different contexts and, and we think it would be a really interesting uh, conference in itself in terms of the things that people are talking about
0: it's it's a very timely I just think about uh, Ferguson Missouri or yeah. you know, the things that happened in Baltimore but not just that I mean that is there's almost a hope there those are terrible events but there's a there's a hopeful side there to that outrage uh, yeah. the degree that it's participation and mobilization and the identification of structures of inequality and the need for change even though we might be frustrated uh, by dimensions of one part of the discourse and another but there are other sides of it which are less hopeful but are equally important in the high school that's one block from my home here in london ontario i don't know if it was two or three kids joined uh, uh they they were killed they joined a radical islamic movement and were part of a bombing of an airport in in africa and were killed you know and uh and these events, these organizations are transnational, and they're drawing kids, young people, young men mostly but not entirely, from all over the world to uh, some of the most desperate situations in the world and in and in some ways, I think there there must be a sense of of hope or desire for change for participation by these young. Persons, no matter how violent and misdirected, from my point of view, or someone else's point of view.
1: Exactly, and, and and I think again, incredibly problematic course of action when you see young people doing that, and it's certainly the issue an issue in Australia as well. The number of people who have um, headed to to Syria or Iraq or wherever to join. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of part of that that conference is is trying to. Open up the conversations about an ongoing assault on what it be, means to be a young person from a particular background. Yeah. Again, we run into difficulties in in how it is that we describe that. So, you know, is neoliberalism the focus of our attention? Is capitalism the focus of our our attention? Is religion concerns, A whole variety of concerns, and I think that's one of the one of the challenges of trying to do the sort of work that we might want to do in that context is being able to develop and deploy a vocabulary that can
0: capture the complexity. You've been listening to a conversation with Peter Kelly on Childhood History and Critique recorded in May 2015. Part two of the conversation can be found on the website of the Society for the History of Children and Youth.